Good morning. Um, excited to, to dive into Leviticus together this morning. Um, to start with, I wanted to read a couple of verses from Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Heavenly Father, um, as we come to your word this morning, Lord, um, again, I confess my own um, inadequacy here um, as a, often a poor student of your word. Um, Lord, but despite my failings, you have promised that your word will not return void to you, but it will accomplish the purpose for which it is sent out. I pray that your spirit would work among, among us now as we, um, as we study Levitic Leviticus for this brief time. I pray that by your spirit, our eyes might be opened to behold wondrous things from your word. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, for those of you who know me, I grew up in Arizona, and growing up uh, in the middle of nowhere in the Arizona desert, I spent a lot of time thinking about one day where I would hope to live and have my own home. Um, I thought Colorado sounded nice, or maybe Florida, um, or even England or someplace like that when I was being really uh, ambitious. But in all that time, Kansas really never made it on my list. To me, Kansas was a flyover state. I had been there once. I'm getting myself in trouble here. I had been there once. My parents had uh, driven across kind of the western portion of the state, getting somewhere else. And uh, I, remember, I remember my impression was that it was flat and gray, and, and in the distance we saw a tornado. That is not even a joke. That really happened. <laughs> the one time I came to Kansas. So based on my very limited experience, my impression of the state was that it was flat and gray and infested with tornadoes. Um, but that was before I had the opportunity to live in Kansas, to spend some time here, to get to know this state. Um, that was before I had the chance to drive through the Flint Hills in the spring uh, or to uh, pick blueberries and strawberries in Kansas farms in the summer uh, or to fish at Clinton Lake uh, and camp with my kids. Um, and so today, um, Kansas is my home. And I could not imagine living anywhere else. I learned how to appreciate it by spending time here and by experiencing uh, uh, the reality of Kansas. I believe, at least for some of us in the past, if we're honest, Leviticus has been something of a flyover book. Because so much of what is in it, uh, animal sacrifices, and dietary restrictions, etc., can seem so far removed from our daily lives, we may be tempted to skip over or skim through Leviticus on our way to 
the good stuff. But we ignore the treasures of this book and the Mosaic law to our own great loss. It's true that under the new covenant, we who are in Christ are not under the law, but under grace. And yet a shallow grasp of the law will translate into a shallow understanding of grace. You may say, but this Old Testament, Old Covenant, Jewish law stuff doesn't really apply to me, does it? I would ask you a question. Does God change? Correct answer. No, he does not change. (laughs) Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, He is the same yesterday and today and forever. We refer to this attribute of God's character as his immutableness. So our God is immutable. Therefore, his laws, his precepts, his truths are immutable. Psalm 119 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The counsel of our God stands forever. So while the old covenant paradigm with which the Levitical law was given has passed away along with its specific implementation of the law. The laws themselves, that is the requirements for acceptance before God that we have outlined for us in Leviticus, are as much in force today for you and I as they were for Moses and the children of Israel. We need to know them. We need to know Leviticus. So to begin we need to answer some basic questions. When and where and by whom was this book written? The first verse, as well as the final verse in Leviticus, answer this question for us. Look at Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1. The Lord God called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, I'd like to, as a side note here, notice that it says, from the tent of meeting. Elsewhere, it's always in the tent of meeting. This seems like a small detail, but it is a very important one, and we'll come back to it in just a minute. Um, So then look at Leviticus um, 27, in the last verse, 34. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. So initially, there appears to be uh, a contradiction between these two verses. Um, Was it from the tent of meeting or was it on Mount Sinai? Um, But it's really just a question of the semantics of the English language. What is meant here is, or it should be understood as at Mount Sinai. So the words, the book of Leviticus was delivered by God to Moses from the tent of meeting at Mount Sinai. And that last detail of the location being at Sinai is significant and it is intended to communicate that Leviticus belongs as a part of the Sinaiic code, the Mosaic law that was delivered at Sinai. And as such, it bears the same weight and purpose and importance as the Ten Commandments carved on tablets of stone. 
As to the author of Leviticus, most of the summary pages in your Bibles will give Moses. However, given the fact that the most often repeated phrase in this book is, and the Lord spoke to Moses, and the Lord spoke to Moses, and the Lord spoke to Moses, and then everything that follows is in quotation marks, I think it is more appropriate to view Moses as being more of a note taker in the writing of Leviticus. God himself was dictating while Moses listened and furiously wielded a reed on clay in his best Phoenician shorthand. His classical Egyptian education was coming in handy at this point. Leviticus is also typically identified as belonging to the historical genre of books in the Bible, but it could really almost belong in a category all its own. It is essentially an instruction manual. It is the companion book for tabernacle worship, with a few historical accounts included, some of them seemingly as examples of what not to do. So now we know the author. We know where Leviticus was delivered. The next basic question we need to answer is, what is the broader context? Leviticus is a continuation of the events that are recorded in the closing chapters of Exodus that Glenn walked us through last week. This book opens at the culmination of months and months of preparation. Thousands upon thousands of man hours have been spent up to this point weaving cloth, smelting metals, and casting instruments, and felling acacia trees, and forming them into beams and boards, and And all of this labor, all of this work and preparation, uh, as you read through it, you get the sense of a slow building anticipation. All of this activity leads up to the most momentous event since Eve bit the apple. Something new was happening. Something that was both beautiful and terrifying. God was coming to dwell with his people. Let's look at Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we mentioned that we see Leviticus is given from the tent of meeting, not in the tent of meeting, which to me indicates that Leviticus, this law was passed immediately from the tent of meeting because Moses couldn't go in. The brightness of the glory was such that he could not enter the tabernacle. But God speaks to him these laws. So now, with the burning glory of God's holy presence, no longer at a safe distance on the summit of Sinai, but now right in their midst, just behind the veil. This reality makes Leviticus, the worship manual, incredibly necessary. Because in their current spiritual state, the presence of a holy God among the people of Israel puts them in great danger. You see, they have a problem. A problem that you and I share 
It is the problem of sin and the just wrath that the guilt of sin incurs before a holy God. God's holiness, you could say, is the overarching theme of Leviticus. But God's holiness is also the overarching theme of all of history, of all the Bible. His holiness is the defining essential characteristic of who he is. God is holy. That is, he is completely and utterly separate from sin and from everything else. There truly are not holding places in our brains to grasp the expansiveness of this truth. His holiness, his purity, his separation from sin transcends our capacity to reason to the extent that you could not measure the difference in billions of light years. So far, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my ways above your ways, says the Lord. He is holy, and his holiness demands judgment for sin. Enter Leviticus. In this book, this manual, God presents his solution to the sin problem through substitutionary atonement. As well, in Leviticus, he gives clear instructions for how his people are to walk before him in practical holiness so that they do not incur greater guilt through ceremonial cleansing and separation from sin. So if you're taking notes this morning and you want to write down in advance some key themes of Leviticus, there are many key themes, but here are a few. One, the holiness of God's justice requires that sin be judged. Also, the holiness of God's mercy provides atonement for sin through substitutionary sacrifice. The holiness of God's purity requires that defilement be cleansed. And lastly, the holiness of God's grace provides cleansing through atonement. Throughout Leviticus, we see again and again and again that what God's holiness requires, his mercy provides. At this point, I'd like to go ahead and put in a disclaimer that we're not going to be able to spend the time in each of the major sections and subjects that Leviticus contains. Um, but what I'd like to do is, since this is, a, since this is a summary, I'd like to do kind of a, a quick overview of the, of the themes that we'll see in Leviticus chapter by chapter. And then I'd like to go back and take more of an in-depth look at the tabernacle offerings or sacrifices. So here goes uh, the summary. Chapters 1 through 7, we see outlined the specific instructions for tabernacle offerings that God would require. Chapters 1 through 5 being directed at worshipers, and chapters 6 through 7 for the priests. Now there are five specific types of offerings that are covered in Leviticus. They are the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Each with its own specific purpose and unique emphasis. Chapters 8 through 10 are a historical record of the beginnings of the Levite priesthood. Chapter 8 covering the ordination of Aaron and his sons. 
chapter 9, detailing the first sacrifices offered by Aaron, and chapter 10 being a cautionary account of the blasphemy and the execution of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. So what happened here? It, was, it would appear that amid all of the excitement and pageantry of their ordination, uh, Aaron's two eldest sons somehow came to think that this was about them. And so they, in, in an effort to show their own importance, took God's worship into their own hands and offered what we read is unauthorized fire. They chose to worship God in a way that they saw fit, and God acted swiftly. We read that fire came out from before the presence of God and consumed them instantly. And immediately God speaks to Aaron through Moses, and he says to him and the rest of his sons, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. The worship of our holy God is not something to be taken lightly. Moving on, chapters 11 through 16 give God's instruction for his people on the avoidance of impurity and uncleanness, the cleansing of defilement, and how they are to remain physically, spiritually, and ceremonially clean, set apart to him, and distinct from the world. Chapter 17 through 27 give us guidelines and instructions in practical holiness, covering such subjects as proper sexual behavior, neighborliness, legislation and punishment for capital crimes and grave sins. Also, we're given the festivals of worship and remembrance that were to be observed by God's people, and finally, an admonition to obey God's law. In chapter 11, verse 44, it says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. So that was our overview. We just skipped a rock across the surface of the book. And now with the time we have left, I'd like to go back and take a more in-depth look at chapters 1 through 7 and the atoning sacrifices. So turn there if you would, if you're not there already, Leviticus chapter 1. As we said before, there are five specific types of offerings that are covered. They are the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. The first three of them being a voluntary expression of worship, and the last two non-negotiable requirements for the congregation. So chapter 1 deals with the burnt offerings. Um, I'd like to go ahead and read, starting in verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, 
And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But his entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Growing up as a uh, uh, missionary's kid on the Navajo Reservation, my family and I were often invited to take part in special celebrations, um, events, festivals that were important in the Navajo culture. And I can remember when I was very young, like six or seven years old, um, being invited to one of these gatherings uh, at a f- the ha- home of a, of a large family, a clan there. And um, <clears throat> at this gathering, a sheep from the flock, the family were shepherds, was to be killed and prepared in the traditional way. I did not know this going in. Um, all I knew that was I was having a lot of fun because they took all the little kids and sent us into the sheep pens and said, see that one over there? Go get him. And uh, so me and my brothers and my buddies, we all went in and we, and we chased the sheep for what seemed like forever. He was really difficult to catch. Um, and uh, I remember just the surge of pride that came when, when I was one of, the, one of the kids to pin him down and we sat on top of him and waited for the adults to get there. And what happened next, I was completely unprepared for. One of the adult men, one of the Navajo men, came in and, and with a lasso, he bound up the legs of the sheep and carried it away to a spot where the matriarch of the family was sitting, and he set it down in front of her, and she drew out this long, sharpened knife, and suddenly it hit me. I could not believe what I was witnessing. And to this day, um, the, the soberingness and the awfulness, the vividness of what happened um, as one of the Navajo ladies brought a, a bowl to catch the blood as this lamb was, was killed. And as I stood there and watched, just transfixed as its life flowed out into this bowl with the blood, It was arresting. It was sobering. The tabernacle sacrifices were designed by God to have this very same effect upon his worshipers. Every detail carefully crafted to point to profound spiritual realities. So I'd like us to look at some of these details that God purposefully placed into the offerings. First one I want us to notice is found in verse 2. It says, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Meaning that it could be a calf or a lamb or a goat, or in the cases of someone who was too poor to afford any of these, it could be a pair of turtle doves or pigeons. In verse 3, we read that it was to be a male without blemish. 
Some interpret this as, as meaning that God expects us to bring us his best. And perhaps that is part of, of what is intended here. But I, I believe what we are to take from this and what the children of Israel would have understood is that being a male without blemish, having no physical imperfection whatsoever, means that there is nothing about this animal that would merit its destruction. See, the Israelites had hundreds of years of experience as shepherds and uh, as breeders of livestock. And as any good breeder would know, a physically flawless male is the last one in the herd that you would select for slaughter. Because an animal like that is far more valuable to you alive for breeding purposes. So a male without blemish means nothing about this animal would justify or recommend that it be put to death. Verse 3, we see the purpose of the offering. <clears throat> it says, He shall bring it into the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. Acceptance before the Lord. This is the whole purpose of this offering and all the other, other offerings. This, as the objective, puts things into perspective. The alternative being rejection from before the Lord and destruction. This is not something to be taken lightly. Either this animal dies in my place or I do. Verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. There's something that is truly powerful and poetic in the simplicity of this act. In placing the, his hand on the head of the sacrifice, the worshiper signifies both recognition of his guilt and his faith in the promise of God that his guilt would be transferred to this animal. This was an act of repentance and faith visualized. In the Hebrew language, the word that is used here for placing the hand on the animal is, it, it gives the idea of leaning with all of one's weight. And some ancient rabbinical, rabbinical texts say here that it was required that the worshiper and the offerer place both hands on the animal and press down with all of their might. So you see that rather than being an empty ritual that people go through, there is, <clears throat> there is meaning and purpose and emphasis here. There is earnestness and intensity to the act to signify that this transfer of guilt is something the worshiper desperately needs and is wholeheartedly committed to. Verse 4 says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Here is the promise of God that the worshiper was putting their faith in. That God, in his mercy, would choose to accept the death of this animal as a substitutionary atonement payment for the guilt of the offerer. Verse 5. Then he, the worshiper, the offerer, shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar. He shall kill the bull before the Lord. The imagery again here 
is full of meaning and poetry and power. The one who is guilty of the offense is the one required to take the life of the sin substitute. In doing this, the worshiper recognizes their ownership of responsibility for their sin and God's just wrath, recognizing that death is the just penalty for their sin and displaying their faith that God will accept the offering in their place. Verse 5, so Aaron's sons are to take the blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. What could be the purpose of this? What is the meaning of this? Why throw it against the sides of the altar? Um, There's certainly mystery here, and we can't comprehend all of what God purposes in these things. But one reason would be or could be that the altar itself, you read later, went through a process of atonement, consecration. Offerings were made so that the altar would be holy to God. And so we see that anything that touches the altar becomes holy. And in splashing the blood against the sides of the altar, it signifies that this blood, this life blood of the offering, becomes holy unto God, separated to him. The payment is made to the one who owns the debt. But also, the the tabernacle sacrifice is so masterfully crafted are meant to engage all of the five senses. And so this vivid, fresh red blood, as it runs down the side of an altar that was covered in brass, would be evident. It puts it on display in the forefront. It could not be ignored. Because this blood, we're told, is the vehicle of atonement. It is the price to be paid because the blood is the life representing the innocent life offered up in the place of the guilty. In Hebrews it says, for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And I'd like to mention that we should bear in mind here also, these sacrifices are but a picture of the once for all atonement that God would make. In and of themselves, they have no power to take away sin. But God in his grace chose to accept them based on the reality of what was to come. So let's please bear that in mind. Verse 9. The priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering. This is what makes the burnt offering unique from other offerings. The entire animal was to be incinerated on the altar. Later we learn that the offering would be left overnight on the altar so that the following morning the priest would go out and all that would be left is ashes. This is to signify that in accepting the atoning sacrifice, the wrath of God is satisfied, it is spent, it is poured out, for he is a consuming fire. Verse 13, we read, we're going to have to start moving a little more quickly. Verse 13, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. What does this mean? As the smoke of this sacrifice rises to heaven, the smell of it, we're told, is pleasing or satisfying to God. The smell of the sacrifice is pleasing to him because 
it simultaneously displays his justice and his mercy. Chapter 2 deals with instructions for the grain offerings, and we'll go over this one pretty quickly. Grain offerings or bread offerings are an important part of, of temple worship. Um, however, they were not intended to make atonement for sin. Um, the grain and the flour offerings were voluntary uh, expressions of worship. Um, they signify that sustenance and the fruit of labor all comes from God and is to and for him. Um, <clears throat> the grain offerings were to be either of raw flour um, or of loaves or wafers baked um, without leaven, leaven often in the Bible representing the pervasiveness of sin. So they were made without leaven. Um, they were anointed with oil um, and frankincense, and a portion of the flour, the bread, or the wafers was to be offered on the altar to God, and the remainder was for the priests. It was God's provision for the priesthood that the people bring these offerings and sacrifices. Um, so you see the, in chapter 2, um, these, these grain offerings and their significance. Um, also, salt was required to be mixed into the flour and the, and the loaves that were offered. It is referred to as the salt of the covenant, um, emblematic of loyalty to the covenant of God that was being expressed through the worship of the grain offering. Um, so chapter 3, moving on, deals with instructions to worshipers for the peace offerings. So the instructions in chapter 3 read very much the same as those for the burnt offering. An animal from the herd or from the flock is to be brought a male without blemish. The hands of the worshiper laid on its head. The worshiper kills and flays the uh, offering at the entrance of the tent of meeting. This is also interesting because it says that the offering was to be killed on the north side of the altar. Um, or it, was, it, it also says before the Lord uh, at the entrance of the tent of meeting to signify that this is of concern and interest to God. This is to him, before him. Um, the offering was to be killed there in front of the door of the tabernacle. Um, so it's not until verse 9 in chapter 3 that we see the key difference emerge between this peace offering and the burnt offering. So look, if you would, real quickly at verse 9. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them. And the long lobe of the liver he shall remove with the kidneys, and the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. So only a portion of this animal was to be offered on the, um, on the altar, the fat, the kidneys, and the liver. Um, so this was what was offered to God, and the remainder of the animal was uh, part of it divided and given to the priests, one thigh and one uh, piece of breast meat. And then the rest of the animal went home with the worshiper to, share, to be shared with his family. Um, so this 
is, is really a beautiful picture, part of it being shared with God, part shared with the priests, and part shared with the worshiper, signifies a meal, a meal that is shared. And in the ancient Near East, as well as in our society, to sit down and share a meal with someone signifies fellowship and peace. So whereas in the burnt offering, you see that atonement brings the, uh, the satisfaction of God's wrath and his justice, in this sacrifice, the peace offering, you see that atonement brings peace and fellowship and reconciliation with God. So then in um, chapter 4, chapter 4 deals with two offerings, the sin offering and the guilt offering. These are similar to one another, except that uh, the laws for the guilt offering include a requirement that for restitution to be made against a person who, who was sinned against. These offerings, unlike the previously three which were voluntary, are non-negotiable. The sin offering was required to be offered by the common people, by priests, and by rulers alike. It was designed so that it could be offered individually and corporately, with a few key differences between them, between the two. Um, so if a sin offering was, was given for the guilt of an individual, a goat or a sheep was to be offered, a male for a ruler, a female for a common person, uh, presumably because males were more valuable, more expensive than the females. Um, and so as with all of the previous offerings, the worshiper was to bring the animal into the, the tabernacle, place the hand on the animal's head. They were to kill it before the Lord. But unlike the burnt offering or the peace offering, the blood was not splashed against the sides of the altar. But rather the priest would take their finger and a portion of it and place it on the four horns of the altar that turned upward to God. This was to signify <clears throat> that the blood payment was to and for God. <clears throat> so the fat and the kidneys and the liver of this animal were burned on the altar, but the flesh of the animal was to be boiled in a consecrated um, vessel and eaten by the priests in the court of the tabernacle. In doing this, the priest symbolically bears on himself the worshiper's guilt and makes atonement for them. So this was, this was how the sin offering was to be made for an individual, either a commoner or a ruler. Now, there were separate rules for the sin offering or the guilt offering as it would be offered for the congregation, for everyone, so in this case, if the sin offering is made for the guilt of the entire nation, the elders of the people were to come together to place their hands on the head of the animal, which was to be a, a bull, showing their recognition and confession of the guilt of the nation, and together they would kill the bull before the Lord. Some of its blood was then taken by the high priest into the tabernacle, where he would dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times in front of the veil which divided the inner chamber from the Holy of Holies. Seven being, throughout the scriptures, the number of 
completion or perfection or wholeness. Meaning that this removal of sin to be accomplished was complete in God's sight. It was for as far as the east is from the, from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. Some of the blood the priest would then take with his finger and place it on the horns of the altar of incense that was before the Lord, before the veil. So these unique differences from all of the other sacrifices tell us something. They are to emphasize to an even greater degree that this particular sacrifice, the sin offering, was of utmost concern to God, and that by sprinkling the blood before the veil and by displaying the blood on the horns of the altar within the sanctuary, where only God could see, it indicates that the removal of sin and its guilt from the people concerns he and he alone. The ability rests with him. The sprinkling of the blood and the displaying of the blood on the horns indicates that the atoning blood price for the removal of sin is paid directly to God. He owns the debt, and he only can cancel it. After this, the priest was instructed to take the flesh of the bull outside the camp where it would be burned up with fire, symbolizing the complete removal of sin from the people through the atoning sacrifice. So as God speaks these words of instruction in this book, he was amazingly crafting the language of redemption. He was writing its themes into the story of his people, placing it always at the center of his worship in vivid imagery. But as we said before, these Old Testament sacrifices in all of their beauty and poetry and terribleness are really only a dim foreshadowing of what the true cost of atonement would be. See, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, Paul says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Oceans of blood of animals could be spilt, and they would never put a dent in the debt that is owed by sinners before a holy God. The animal sacrifices in and of themselves had no true power to remove sin. It is only because of the future reality of Christ's sacrifice which they represented and pointed to that God could accept them. But their purpose was to be a picture of what he would do. Because in the fullness of time, he sent his son to be the once and for all atonement for sin. Only his death could satisfy the wrath of a holy God. Only his blood could pay the penalty that God's holiness required. He alone could bear the infinite weight of guilt in his body on the cross. And he alone can remove our sins from us through his suffering outside the gate. His life for ours. I hope that in studying 
Leviticus together this morning for this brief, <coughs> brief time, that you have been able to catch some of the beauty that the psalmist saw in the law when he said, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Sweeter to me are your words than honey. There is treasure here and deep truth that we ignore all too often. I would encourage you, when you can, to spend some time studying Leviticus. Let's pray. Our Father, um, God, we are just so thankful for your word and thankful for the truth that you, um, that you reveal by your spirit to us. Um, I pray that you would help us to honor your word and to value it and to treasure it and to spend time in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>